Another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, September the 1st, 2023, which means August is finally gone. Um, Is it just me? Or did anybody else feel like August was here forever. If you were ever in the military, you know that especially when dates land a certain way with 1st and 15th, if you were ever in the military that like it's the most strung out pay period for people that are paid twice a month that there is. It's no different than any other month with 31 days in it except it just seems to work out that way where people go 18, 19 days without a paycheck and and privates in the military tend to make well not much more than minimum wage. How are you going to survive without your beers? Anyway, uh, I was just having some conversations about that yesterday with some fellow uh, veterans and even a couple people still actively serving. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? It ain't going to be any of that except let's say August good riddance. Uh, before we go there, um, this is how it always works. August goes forever and then the last bit of the year tumbles like a boulder coming down the cliff. TikTok, TikTok, the clock ticks for us all. 2024 is in sight if you are not working on your liberty, independence, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance. Life is moving you in the opposite direction. What are you going to talk about today? The Ron Paul Liberty Highlights. Ron Paul says, we don't need better regulators and bureaucrats. We need freedom from them. Dan McAdams says, Biden says the new vaccine will work. But remember when he said that about the last one? And Chris Rossini says... Will we live up to land of the free and home of the brave ever again? And sadly, I don't know the answer to that. Dr. Ken Berry talks about kind of two things. This is a weird way this question rolled out. A person who wants to eat fish because they're not exactly fond of meat, but they're worried about mercury, and that's an easy one to answer. And then overcoming a dislike of meat, and this person says, well, I used to eat game meat, and I like that, but I don't like meat from the store, and I think there is an issue here. I'll let Ken explain it, and then I want to talk about it, too, because it kind of throws in my workshop and not wanting to eat the cheapest meat you can buy, which is not what we do. We do, of course, buy large and in bulk to save money, but it's not like we serve inferior food. So I'll try to answer a little bit of that, too, without taking it personally. Uh, Jeff Lawton will talk about dealing with the invasive Asian jumping worm when you're making compost for resale. Professor C.J. Kilmer will talk about what actually happened to the British Empire and what parallels are there to the U.S. today. Because the British Empire and its fall is very recent, and to me it's a lot more analogous to the U.S.'s empire on the edge of a fall than the Roman Empire. But when people talk about the U.S. Empire falling, they always invoke Rome or Germany. I think we're missing something there, and CJ's going to talk about that. Doc Bones will talk about surviving mudslides, and that's something we might see some more of in storm season coming up. Josh, the renegade butcher, has a great segment on choosing a meat cleaver 
which goes great with the show that we did yesterday. And if you're wondering, well, Jack, why didn't you talk about meat cleavers during the setup for that show? Well, a couple reasons. One, I knew this segment was coming today. And two, yesterday we weren't talking about the things that generally use a meat cleaver for, because one of them is bone, and we were talking about boneless cuts yesterday. Uh, though cleavers can be quite useful for many things, and Josh has a recommendation. i got a link in the show notes where you can see the one he's recommending. It's very affordable, and it's a really cool meat cleaver. Also, I have a segment. I've decided I want to do a lot less politics, but some of this shit needs to be talked about. So I might, for a while, kind of bring like a segment that has like a political or geopolitical or a global economic impact to my Friday segments, freeing me for the rest of the week to not do it. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, who you can love or hate because it's not about her, she gave a speech recently about the rise of BRICS and the threat that it poses to America. And I want to submit to you when I cover this and I read parts of it to you, with a couple tweaks, it would actually sound like maybe it was a Babylon Bee article. How dare how dare these countries use their own money and circumvent U.S. sanctions? And now she does say it's our fault. Okay, fine. But you're still back to, the, the, we are in such jeopardy that two countries might trade and leave us out of it. Think about what that means. And I want to tie in a little bit more about all these conflicts all over the world that probably wouldn't happen. Well, I'll explain it when I get to my segment. Before we do that, a couple things. One... Uh, as I announced yesterday, it is my intention to put the fall workshop on sale on Saturday next weekend. I'm not 100% sure that's going to happen, but I'm going to try to do it. If not, you know, I got to go another weekend out. And uh, so, uh, if you're if you're wanting to put down a date and mark a date, I'm talking about the 9th of September. Traditionally, this workshop is sold out anywhere from five minutes to 35 minutes. So. Usually, if you want to come, you can come, all right? But if you don't get up that morning and try to come, you don't get to come. It's like kind of like Jimmy Buffett tickets. It's, it's, it's not one of these new acts that sells out in five seconds, and you gotta get you got to get scalpers five minutes after it starts. But if you wait you know, a full morning, it's over. It's done, and you're on the wait list, and usually not much opens up for that. Also, I will try to get out this weekend the schedule for it the menu for it, and something really special that I've hooked up for people this time around. Something that there literally will never be a way to get it into your hands ever again. And it will only be for people attending with a little caveat that you'll find about when I release the information. Uh, last, before we dump in, jump, into, dump into, jump into Ron Paul and the Liberty Forum segment, um, I just want to make an announcement. I said yesterday, I'll catch you guys. You know, we'll, we'll do the expert council. I'll be back next week on Monday with a new show. I will not. I forgot that Monday was Labor Day. I am taking the day off. I'll probably do some work. I got a lot of work to do to get ready for this workshop coming up. And, and, and putting in a trip to Tennessee in the middle of it makes it more work. Uh, and so having the ability to have some downtime with my wife, I am going to take it. And so there will be four shows, not five shows next week. With that, Ron Paul Liberty highlights for the week. You know, uh, Oliver Anthony uh, is a unique individual, and what we witness is very unique as uh, crystal clear 
as uh, this song is in telling what, uh, where the problems are and, and what the people are really thinking. But uh, the next step is crucial too, because when the people do realize all this, all they say, there will be uh, what, what is going to happen to the people who are determined to use government. They say, yes, we agree with this, that we're going to do something about it. We need better regulators. The Fed's not good. We need a better Federal Reserve Board chairman. <laughs> we need better politicians, better regulations, and there will be another substitute for this. So that is, that is a big thing. They'll vary it a little bit and saying that we will be more pragmatic and we'll have better leaders, just better management. That's all that we need is, you know, a, a better managed system. Instead of boiling it down, no, we don't need a complication of how to solve this. We need liberty and we need to challenge all authoritarianism. But anyway, we want to talk about the return of COVID. Not exactly the return of COVID, but the return of the COVID mentality yeah. to scare the people. And this is, a, this is, in a way, more vicious to earlier. I happen to think that they can't possibly pull this yeah. off again. Yeah. They can't possibly. <laughs> if you think about that, that really characterizes our era. They can't possibly claim that Trump is working for Putin. They can't possibly expect us to believe this P-tape and other things. They can't possibly expect us to take these shots and put on masks. They can't possibly arrest Trump. But they do. And, and, and that's the, I think that's the characteristic of our era. They can't possibly, but they do. And so they can't possibly be resurrecting this Frankenstein monster, <laughs> yeah. but they are. And let's put this is from the Epic Times, uh, and they're just so shameless. Let's put this first one up. Biden is likely to recommend everyone get the new COVID vaccine. And he's asking Congress for more money because they need to get a new vaccine. And you might ask, well, doesn't that kind of an admission that the old one doesn't work? <laughs> the one that everyone was supposed to have gotten and thankfully aren't getting, I wonder how much it's going to cost to do a new one, and if a Republican-led Congress will roll over and say, oh, okay, want some money, here's some money. To combat this authoritarianism, we Americans have some changing to do. You know, I'm sure I'm not alone uh, in thinking that the reaction by the American people to the COVID tyranny was disappointing. You know, we sing uh, anthems about being the land of the free and the home of the brave, and boy, was that a bad reflection uh, of what we really are. You know, the, the government got away with what they got away with for way too long. They did tremendous damage. And of course, nobody was punished. So they think, well, let's start it again. You know, this was the first time, to be fair, that the government was so in our face. You know, in general, they're, they're out there somewhere. They, they, they take taxes from us. They bother us. For little things this was you know sticking stuff in your body locking you in your home destroying your livelihood this this is hardcore stuff and we americans are not used to that you know we we hear that that's what goes on in iraq that goes on somewhere else well it went on here and we did not rise to the challenge eventually eventually once you know uh the momentum got going but far too late you know and we have to realize that we're still dealing with the same people the same governments, the same media, they're all there. So to, they haven't turned a new leaf thinking, you know what, what we did was wrong. You know, so we all have to, we can't be spectators as hard as it is. Uh, we can't be spectators. We are all a part of this. 
and we all have to do our part no matter how big or how small. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a Joe Rogan. There already is a Joe Rogan or a Ron Paul. There is a Ron Paul. He's right there. You know, but we have to each do something productive to spread the ideas of liberty. You and your own circle will do our part in our circle. And, uh, you know, and that's how once enough people see through all the lies that they've been exposed to, they will react differently and we can have some hope for the future. Yeah, I'm back on the whole uh, resurfacing of mandates or masks or vaccines. All this shit is. Go ahead and F around and find out. Go ahead and see if it works. I honestly hope in some ways that they actually try it. I think when it's, you know, colleges or certain hospitals and all, they kind of have their own little dictatorial, you know, inside my house, it's my rules type of shit that they can pull. And I think most of the people in those institutions will just cave to it. And I, go ahead. I'm talking about widespread mass scale. I, I want to see the people of the United States just basically say, go fuck off. I, I really want to see if, if, if anybody's learned anything. And so go ahead and try it. Now, again, I'm back to my state has literally passed laws that makes it illegal in my state for anyone to do this shit. It, it, it's, it's almost impossible to do in Texas now under state law, not just an executive order. So I beat up on government all the effing time. I know it might be some political theater to make people feel good. But, hey, I mean, Abbott even asked the legislature to curtail his own. I've never seen a governor do this in my adult life. Abbott made a specific request to the state legislature and said, I want you to limit the authority of government to do things like this. And you know what our pussy-ass legislature did? They didn't do it. They didn't do it. And people would say, well, why don't he just not do it? Well, he probably won't. Well, why don't he do an executive order saying he can't? Well, because all that would happen is the ne this is not about Abbott. This is about whoever the next governor is. And it, it's almost like, in spite of all our rigmarole and talk down here in Tejas about being, you know, a Lone Star State and for freedom and liberty and blah, 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 our pussy-ass legislature isn't really pussy-ass legislature. What they are is a bunch of scum that want to make sure, hey, we've got to retain those powers in the future because there might be another governor in another situation. We might want to stomp on people's liberties again. Uh, but I think this one's I think this one's wrung out. Now there's some lunatic zones that will comply with this shit, but I think the vast majority of people are like we're done playing that game. So I'm not real concerned about it. Of course, I agree completely with Dr. Paul on the concept that what we need is freedom from these idiots, not them doing more. Uh, anybody at this point that's calling on the government to do more in our lives should just be like sent to an island somewhere and just told this is what the government wants, and you should stay here and do whatever you're told. They can, we can make a socialist island. They can all go live there and see how it works out for them. Uh, as far as the vaccine not working, of course it doesn't work, and it's not going to work. It, the fact that we have not developed a vaccine that is any way effective for the common cold tells you why this cannot happen. This is a, uh, a, a, a coronavirus. It mutates about as fast as, as beer goes through the human system. You go to a bar, you hadn't had a drink all day, you drink three beers, two beers, and what do you do? You're taking a pee before the first 30 minutes. It, it's almost that quick. You're not going to do it. 
It's not possible. It's all theater. It's a money grab. And it, I'll tell you why it's happening. This is the real... The government wants to get... No, it's because Pfizer and Moderna and all these other assholes, their stock prices are tanking and their profits are down and they're trying to revitalize it through the medical industrial complex and they can all go screw. Something better. Let's talk about something better. How about your person and you have an issue with eating meat. And I'm glad Ken answered this question, because I don't think I could have came up with an answer as good as he did. Uh, you're also concerned about, well, I'm eating fish instead of meat, but I'm worried about mercury. Uh, Ken, take it away. Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question for Chola today. Uh, I have not eating, eaten meat, Chola says, since I was a teenager, because I do not like it. But I do eat fish, but worry about the mercury. How can I be healthier? I have been able to eat little pieces of white meat from chicken, but I really want to come to the TSP events, but I know there will be a lot of meat, and honestly, I would like to eat it, but I do not like it, usually. I tried some bone broth I made for the dog. I uh, didn't like the taste. Help, I grew up hunting, and I'm all about wild meat, just not about myself eating factory farm meat, I guess, but I am trying. I, it just doesn't appeal to me much to eat the worst chicken they make, and I don't have access to hunted meat anymore. Should I take a shot of bone broth every day with a chaser? Would that give me any protein or just like minerals? So this is a good question. A lot of people are grown up, grow up not being taught to eat meat. And like any behavior, eating meat, enjoying meat, looking forward to meat is a learned behavior to a certain degree. That's why we started off our, our two kids, Beckett and Bonnie, the first bite of food that went in their mouth was red meat and eggs because we want to foster a proper human diet for them so that they will love that from day one and enjoy it the rest of their life. So Chola, first of all, let's talk about the seafood issue. If you eat large carnivorous fish from the ocean, like swordfish and humongous tuna, then you do have to worry about the mercury content. If, however, you eat smaller herbivorous fish, which means they eat plankton, they eat algae, they eat plants, then there's not the buildup of mercury. And that's why I'm a huge advocate for anchovies, sardines, cod, and herring, mackerel, uh, fish like that, that are mainly herbivorous because they don't have increased levels of mercury. Now, how to learn to like meat if you don't like it. So the fact that you like wild game, that means that you do like meat, Chola. Um, if you like venison, if you like, let's see, what wild game have I eaten? Squirrel, turkey, rabbit, uh, groundhog, rattlesnake, copperhead. If you like wild game, you like meat. And so what's happened is, is you've been taught or you've learned that meat you buy from the grocery store is somehow inherently unhealthy, not good for you, inflammatory, toxic, I don't know exactly. But this sounds like a mental issue, not a mental illness, but this is just a learned habit. And that, the reason I know that is because you like wild game. And if you, did, if you like wild game, then you like meat. So what I would do if I were you, I, I assume you're eating a predominantly plant-based diet right now. Uh, which means you're probably eating at least three meals a day with snacks in between. What I would do is I would fast. I would fast for 24 hours, 36 hours, no snacking, no no food at all, because I'm afraid that you don't know what true hunger is, Chola. 
I'm afraid that you, you've eaten every two hours all of your life to the point where you don't even know what it feels like to truly be hungry. So a, a one or a two day fast will reintroduce you to the concept of true hunger. And I think all of Jack's followers should do at least one 24-hour fast in their life just to know what it feels like not to eat anything for 24 hours. I think it's a great survival skill. It's a great tool to have in your tool chest just in in case things ever go sideways. But in your case, what it's going to do, it's going to make you truly hungry. And then I want you to go in the kitchen, and I want you to cook a ribeye or some ground beef and then try to eat it. And And if you're like, oh, I don't want it, then fast some more. And once you've fasted long enough to become truly hungry, you will scarf down the red meat because the red meat, even the cheapest, most poorly raised red meat that you can buy at your supermarket is 100 times better for you than the the processed high-carbohydrate food that's all junk food that we call food that's in the center aisles of the grocery store. I hope that answer helps you chola uh meat is your ancestral food whether you currently know it or not this is dr barry i'll see you next time so let's start out with the fish what i generally tell people is if you're going to eat a lot of fish do exactly what ken said eat fish that are further down on the uh the food chain and you really do not have to limit this just to fish that are more of a uh, a phytoplankton consumption uh, fish and all of the meat zooplankton as well by the way mercury buildup just like many toxins in ocean life is really directly related to the longer that animal's alive so here's an example I can't remember the name of the bacterium but there's a bacterium that sometimes ends up causing illness uh, and one of the fish they tell you don't ever eat it because you could get this thing even though it's a delicious fish by the way is barracuda and if you actually dig into it and you look at the real research, what they say is, well, don't eat barracuda over about three foot. You know, under three foot, go ahead and throw that sucker on the grill and don't worry about it. Especially in certain waters, it's less likely to have it anyway. But once they get, you know, three and a half, four foot, you get a big-ass barracuda. It's been alive a long time. And if you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Well, don't eat this barracuda. Where's the disease come from? Well, this disease comes from all the fish that it eats. So I'm sitting here eating a, a, a speck trout. Right, or I'm sitting here eating any other predatory fish. I'm eating a, a two and a half foot long black tip sharks. I got steaks out of great. It eats the same shit the barracuda eats. It has the same potential. It's that these older fish accumulate more toxin and it makes it more likely to be an issue. Same thing with mercury. So if you eat smaller fish, then you are less likely to be getting mercury. The other thing I always tell people, like, well, how much fish are we talking about here? If you're eating three or four meals of fish uh, from the ocean a week, then this is a concern. If you're eating one or two a month, I don't even worry about it. I will sit down and eat my ass some ahi tuna, and I don't care. And I ain't worried about it, and breathing air is dangerous. Uh, but I w- would I sit down and eat ahi tuna every day of my life? No, I would not. I would love to do it, but I wouldn't. I would consider that a health risk. I look at it more like drinking. If you're sucking down a bottle of vodka a day, you're going to kill yourself. If you're having a drink, you know, every weekend or so, you, you ain't. Anyway, uh, n- now the next thing, they seem like there's a stab there directly at my event with the quality of my food. And anybody that's been here will tell you that's just bullshit. That's just bullshit. We've had some things not go perfect 
a time or two, and I've always made sure we took corrective action on it. But the overall thing, I think Ken's right. Go. This is the same way I handle kids that don't want to eat. Well, don't eat. You don't eat for long enough, all of a sudden everything tastes good. And I agree with Ken. If you've eaten other meat and then you like that but you don't like this, this is more of a mental thing. And I'm not, just like Ken, I'm not attacking you. My, my own wife will tell me I don't want to think about what I'm eating when I'm eating steak, even though I love steak, because when I think about it, it grosses me out. Okay? And I love my wife. So, but that's, and she'll admit, that's a mental issue. That is not a taste issue. And the idea that, well, this perfectly pastured, beautiful piece of steak over here, I could eat that, but I don't like eating this, this, okay. That's back to, I don't want to eat conventional meat, but it's not a taste thing. Because I promise you, if I put a, a properly grass-finished piece of beef in front of you, and I set right next to it something out of the, the commercial system, I have no doubt the omegas in the grass-fed are better, the quality is better. But you're not going to be able to tell me which one is which, unless you're some sort of beef sommelier. And so there is this uh, mental issue. Now, we'll say on the food, we try to be accommodating. We do a lot with pork. And so we do have people that don't eat pork, not because they don't like it, because they have religious reasons. We try to make sure there's always some protein for others. I'll just tell you flat out, though, and, and we say this across the board with the event, it is a meat-centric meal situation. Okay, it is. But I don't know. I'm trying not to take personally this, because it could be just not really directed at us. But this idea that we would serve like the shittiest thing we can get our hands on, it just isn't true. And if you feel that way, I would advise you not to come. And I don't say that to be an asshole or anything. I just say that as if your expectations are such that me putting on the first day in front of you a giant center cut pork chop with a nice sear on it, and that will not make you happy then the whole thing's not going to make you happy. And there's a tremendous expense that goes into the food. And we have to charge to do it. And the event sells out very rapidly. And the people that come to the event are usually 60 to 70% repeat attendees. And usually somewhere between 40 to 50%. If I say who's been here more than four times or five times, the hands go up. So obviously we're doing something right. So if the food is off-putting, you either bite the bullet and bring your own food or don't come. And, again, I don't say that to be nasty. I just say that, like, I don't know. It seems like a backhanded smack at what we're doing, and maybe there's an agenda there. I I don't know. I hope not. And and I will just assume the benefit of the doubt conversation I had with my grandson this weekend applies here, that I'll give you the benefit of the doubt that it doesn't. But I agree with Ken. Don't eat for a day or two and i'll bet you a ribeye from kroger's tastes pretty good let's go on and take another one uh this one about compost and jumping worms with jeff lawton hi jeff lawton here coming to you from australia and um i have a question here in regard to jumping worms and um people are worried about how you get rid of these invasive asian worms the jumping worm and um, this particular inquir- inquiry comes from someone who wants to produce high quality compost for sale using uh, Jeff's chicken tractor on steroids, um, but they don't want to spread the invasive species to their customers. Is there anything they can do to make sure the compost is clean 
or do to give up or do they give up on the idea well it's actually quite simple um the jumping worms are killed by temperatures over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, um, that's 37.7 degrees centigrade. And um, our compost goes up to a minimum of 50 degrees centigrade and up to 70 degrees centigrade. So that's way hotter than they can tolerate and their cocoons die as well so they just become part of the compost now if you're using my system of um, chicken tractor on steroids you're going to have to make sure you hit the top temperature now I would advise starting the compost for the first one or two turns outside of the chickens um, get an accurate high nitrogen component. If you've got enough nitrogen, you'll easily get to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And that'll kill all the worms and all their cocoons. So you can get a compost thermometer. Um, you can purchase them online. They've got a fast acting tip. They probe right into the middle of the pile. Um, just practice at getting heaps up to that temperature before you bring them into the chickens and it's game over. They're all done. So you're going to get those temperatures at the beginning of composting process, not at the end. So get your temperature up in the first four to six days um, outside of the chickens. So they don't sort of because they the chickens tend to sort of scratch the outside quickly before it gets up the temperature and sort of spread it around. You might not always get to the temperature on every bit of material, but if you make sure that you get the temperature after four days of construction, turn it, and then after another two days, you're ready to turn it again. You should be up, and it wouldn't take much to get this right to practice. A little bit of practice, you'll get it to get to those high temperatures that'll kill all the uh, cocoons and the worms themselves. Now, look it up online. It was really easy for me to Google. There's lots of scientific research about the temperatures that kill these worms and their cocoons and they're not at all a problem to achieve with compost so you'll have uh, you can sell your um, uh, your compost guaranteeing it's been up to temperatures that wipe out all the jumping worms and their cocoons there you go so in, in principle i completely agree with jeff even my johnson sue like version of composting when i stick a thermometer in there I'm getting up to between 150 and 160 degrees Fahrenheit. There ain't no worm or no worm egg or no worm uh, cocoon that's going to survive that temperature. And with the method that Jeff uses with the chicken tractor on steroids, much more rapid production, okay, and constant turning, you know, I probably have a higher temperature toward the core than I do to the outside, and the outside may never reach that high of a temperature ever. So in that method of compost making, there is nothing uh, from a standpoint of a worm, a earthworm, jumping worm, tapeworm, that's going to survive. It's like a super intense fever for 18 days. I would bet, though, that the person doing this that's trying to be responsible and not introduce an invasive species to a customer's location is like, yeah, but after I make it and it's sitting there all nice and cool and all this beautiful organic matter, 
how do I know that they don't get in there then? And, 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 and my statement would be then you need to rapidly, uh, upon completion, uh, bag this stuff and store it in a manner for shipping that would prevent that from occurring. Because as soon as a compost bed stops being active, if there are worms near the bed, they will end up in the bed, uh, regardless of species. And it, it's such that, here's an example. I have a video from a few years ago when I was you know, doing a lot of research with hydroponics for the audience. And I had a hydroponic system. And it was really cool that this happened, actually, because of all the, it's inert, life can't live in there, and the plant's growing out of it. No, but the plant's not the kind of life I mean. Soil life can't live in there. It's dead. It's, you know, here's beans. You know, here's peas in my hydro system with giant bacteria, nitrogen nodules all over the lake. Ah, it's not real. Okay. But then I found one. I, I see these plugs, and I pull the, the plant out to inspect the roots. And in the rapid rooter plugs, there's worms, like the good guy worms, earthworms. This is a system in a plastic container sitting up on a shelf in a greenhouse with no ground contact, and somehow they ended up in there. If I dig into my aquaponic systems, I will find worms in them, including systems that I never intentionally anyway introduced worms into. So worms get into stuff. But I think that would be the way that you could mitigate it. As soon as you have finished your last turn, get it in there. The other thing I think you could do that would help mitigate it would be uh, lay down some form of tarp or uh, some sort of hard surface between the co contact with the ground and the piles as you're making them, uh, unless, especially towards the end. So maybe you just go, because while, like I said, while it's cooking, it ain't happening, but maybe the last couple turns, as you turn it, you put it onto some sort of ground separation. That should mitigate it. But the reality is you can't, it's good that you care, but you can't worry about this too much because these things are here. They're going to do what they're going to do, and we're going to have to adapt to them. So don't intentionally do it and do what you can to mitigate it, but don't let it prevent you from doing this if it's something you really want to do. Moving on, let's talk about the British Empire and its corollaries to the modern U.S. Empire, even though a lot of special children say, America's not an empire. We're an empire in every way that an empire could be defined. C.J. Kilmer, take it from there. Howdy, this is C.J. Kilmer from the Dangerous History Podcast, and I'm responding to a question from a listener named Nate. And Nate says, can you explain what happened to the British Empire and how it fell from where they were a global superpower to where they are today? I don't recall ever learning of any major crash. Was it just a slow decline? Any parallels to what the U.S. may be going through? So great question, and actually, the British Empire is something I do eventually want to dig into in great detail on the Dangerous History Podcast, because it was my primary field of study in graduate school, and I think it's a very interesting topic. And I agree with sort of what Nate said in that most Americans at least don't seem to know hardly anything about it, other than they tried to tax tea in 1776, and so we rebelled and overthrew them or whatever. But the British Empire is the modern empire, at least, that has by far the most similarities to the United States in terms not just of language and certain aspects of our legal and political system, but even in the overall approach to empire of carrying out imperialism, often through corporate means and financial means, and of attempting to be a transoceanic power, projecting power on multiple continents. So I actually taught a three-part course back in, I think, around January of this year for Renegade University on the decline and fall of empires, in which I talked not just a lot about the British Empire, but about a number of other empires to look for kind of similarities and differences in how different empires decline and fall. 
And when people try to explain the decline and fall of various empires, they often key in on certain very specific factors. But to me, when you're trying to look at, like, what do they have in common, you have to zoom the lens further out from what I would call proximate factors, right? The specific things like, oh, the Mongols invaded, and that's why this empire collapsed over here. And instead, try to get to the root of the problem, what I would call ultimate factors. And so at least as of right now, my kind of working theory or hypothesis is that there are two factors going on with empires that when they happen to come together around the same time are likely to lead to a decline and perhaps even a fall of that empire. And I think ultimately that's what's going on with any empire. Now the details will be very different depending on the time and place and culture and you know economy and all these other factors. Different empires operate differently, so the details will always be unique. But the two factors that I think, when they come together, are likely to cause an empire to decline and even fall are, number one, generational decline. I do think that there is some sort of a cyclical generational thing. I don't believe in a fundamentalist sort of way in the Strauss-Howe generational cycle theory, but I think there's sort of something to it. I think there's definitely something to the idea that's often summarized with the phrase, good times create weak men. Weak men create bad times, bad times create strong men, strong men create good times. Something like that seems to be happening in empires. Now, that's cyclical, so, you know, every maybe four generations or so, it kind of repeats itself. However, there's a second dynamic going on simultaneously to sort of a different rhythm or timetable. And it's a phenomenon that's sometimes summed up with the phrase complex systems collapse or general systems collapse. And the argument is that in any complex system, such as, for example, a complex state, or even an imperial state. In the early years of the growth of this institution, as the state adds additional levels of complexity, like new institutions, new laws, new agencies, etc., initially, those new layers of complexity actually add to the system. They make the system more powerful, more productive, more profitable, at least for the elites anyway. But eventually, you get to a point where the additional layers of complexity start to have diminishing and then even negative returns. So eventually, the additional layers of complexity being added to the system constantly are no longer adding to its effectiveness and power, but are actually leading to its diminishment. And if you have that happening, and then you have a period of generational decline, particularly where the elites of the empire are losing their competence, that's likely to result in a decline and even perhaps a fall of an empire. Now, in the British case, I think the specific factors going on are, you know, th those two big factors are certainly the ultimate causes, I would say. But the specific proximate factors that were at play were, number one, relative economic decline. The British had gotten such a head start on the Industrial Revolution over the rest of the world that eventually they got to a point where they sort of sat on their laurels and stopped being as innovative as other countries that were a little bit later to industrialize. And the two big ones that overtook the British were, number one, the United States, and number two, Germany. And depending on how you measure it, sometime between the 1870s and roughly 1900, the United States became the world's number one industrial power, and Germany became number two, overtaking the British. And the British elite then fell into something known as Thucydides' Trap, which is where there's a relatively declining power, and it is confronted with a rising power. And the declining power will go to war to try to prevent the rising power from continuing to rise and challenge its dominance. And instead of resulting in the new rising power being slapped down, I mean, it might result in that too, but one of the effects, more often than not, seems to be that the declining power actually speeds up its own decline. In other words, by picking a fight, it's like the old boxing champ who tries to defend his title 
rather than gracefully retire from the scene and ends up getting his ass kicked. And in the case of World War I and World War II, which is where the British essentially fell for Thucydides' trap, they were able to avoid losing the war by kind of allying with the U.S. and then in World War II also with the Soviet Union. And this allowed them to quote-unquote win the war, but nonetheless, both of those wars sped up Britain's relative decline. Now, I will say that I give the British elite credit that they managed decline and fall of their empire probably about as skillfully as any empire's ruling classes in history ever have. They definitely had perhaps the softest landing of any modern empire that declined and fell. And that was because they were still able to, as much as they were not as skillful as earlier generations of British imperial elites, they still were skillful enough that they were able to, in various ways, kind of get Team America to come in and, you know, sort of be like their big brother. And if you look at what ended up happening in World War I and World War II, that's essentially what happened. And so they softened their decline and fall in a lot of ways that most empires are not able to do. And if you look at the declining American empire today, there's nobody that can serve the role that the U.S. played for the British Empire in the early to mid-20th century. So yeah, I think there are a lot of parallels to the British Empire and the American Empire. I have my suspicions as to why American schools, both K-12 and universities, generally teach the British Empire very little, if at all. Probably because elites don't want Americans to see all the parallels, because they might draw conclusions that the elites don't want them to draw. But yeah, many similarities... And if you look at the way the U.S. is currently, you know, trying to regain its imperial mojo by picking fights with countries like Russia and China, it's very dangerous. It was dangerous enough when the British did it, and that was before nuclear weapons were a thing. And again, as of right now, I don't see any other rising power that the American elites seem at all inclined to ally with and sort of, you know, become the little brother or junior partner to the way the British did with the U.S. in the early to mid-20th century. There's so much parallel to this with my segment. I won't say much on it here uh, as we head into the next segment, except for one really important thing here. You know how whenever you say here's a flaw in the United States, especially when it pertains to war, conflict, adversarial nations, people say, you're not a patriot, you hate America, all that stupid shit. There is an alternative for a, a power to not become the little brother or go to war. It would be to assess why you're falling behind, and instead of fucking around in the rest of the world, go and fix the fucking problem. Address the concern. Go focus inside your borders at the things that are causing you to fail and correct them. I just don't believe government and the elite powers are capable of doing this because they never had. And when somebody's never done a thing and never even tried to do a thing, you start to realize it's maybe because they can't. Or they've always failed when they've tried. You know, I don't know, like all the stuff we, we've done in the Middle East. But just real quick, before we go to our next one, which is totally different. How would this work if we were talking about a football coach? Let's say a football team's getting ready for a game, and the coach looks, and everybody thinks uh, Team A, because I don't want to get anybody's bias up in a knot here, Team A is definitely going to win, and Team A believes they're going to win. And the football coach has been watching tapes and doing his fucking job. And he sees the way this opponent is playing, and he sees the adjustments they're making, and he, they're winning games, but not by big scores like his team is. But he looks at what they're doing, and he realizes, holy shit, the, team, the coach of Team B 
realized that we were his insurmountable opponent this year, and he wants to get to the playoffs. And what the adjustments that have been made are, he's tailoring his team. He knows his team is pretty much good enough to beat most of the other teams. He's building his team to beat us. So he goes to his assistant coaches, he goes into the locker room, he talks to his team, and he says, we have three weeks to get ready for this game. If we do not make some adjustments right now, we have a real chance of losing the game. And the assistant coaches and the principal, if it's a school, and the parents, or the dean if it's a college, or the board if it's a professional team, and I'll start screaming at the coach and saying, you stupid asshole, you don't believe in our team anymore, you're a traitor. That's American foreign policy politics in a nutshell right there, folks. That's the whole damn thing, and we'll talk about more in my sub uh, my segment. Right now, I actually want to bring Josh, the renegade butcher, on. He's going to talk about meat cleavers before my blood pressure gets too high and a vein pops in my head. Hello, TSP audience. It's Josh, the renegade butcher, coming back to you again with another answer for the expert council. Today, we've got a really good one. Um, this one comes in from John, and I will say that uh, not only did John do exactly as he should have uh, as far as the format of submitting this question, where he is very brief and to the point with his question and then had a bunch of follow-up. What he did have for, for follow-up was awesome. He even included a really cool story. So it's uh, it's a joy to be able to read questions like this. Um, if you guys have any cool stories like that, uh, along with a question, be sure to share them, toss them over to the jack, uh, throw them out there for a Rangate Butcher or anybody else on the Expert Council. Uh, we, we really enjoy these. So with uh, no further delay, let me jump into this. John says, Hi Jack, I need advice from Josh on meat cleaver selection. How big, more than one, brand? Details. I'm an amateur butcher that processes deer, lamb, poultry, and potentially someday beef and pork on premises. I have a decently good set of tools but I'm missing out in the meat cleaver department. I don't know much about them. What should I be looking for when shopping? I'm a buy-it-for-life kind of guy, so I'm not afraid to pay for something that will be handed down to my kids. It doesn't have to be flashy or trendy, but I do want it to last. Can Josh make some recommendations for size, brand, and any other factors, please? Also, just a cool story as an aside. I love this story. We are living on a farm that has been in our family for 115 years. We were renovating a building and found one of my great-grandfather's old butchering knives. It's a very large boning knife. They self-processed all their cattle and hogs back in the early 1900s through the 1950s, and it has initial, his initials on the handle. I never knew the man, but it is beyond cool to be using one of his tools to carry on the tradition. Also, I have no idea what steel it is, but it is by far the sharpest knife in my arsenal. It's like a 12-inch razor blade. Thank you, signed John. John, that is an awesome question, and uh, I do have some advice for you, some thoughts on it. Um, as usual, it kind of depends. There's some very variation there, but I will try to uh, decrypt cleavers here. Uh, I want to say, though, that is an awesome story. I love finding old knives like that. Uh, a lot of the, the older butchering tools, I mean, obviously, things would vary back then just like they do today. There were There were crappy pieces of equipment around. However... Much of the stuff that was actually made, oh, hello, rooster, was actually made for uh, processing was good, high-quality German steel. 
And uh, you don't see near as much of that anymore. Um, that would be my uh, my guess, was it's probably a good quality uh, German steel. Yeah, I've got a uh, small rooster that uh, has not made it outside to the pen in these heats yet. So if you hear some squawking in the background, guys, just know that's, uh, that's someone who's an early bloomer. Anyways, sorry about that. To get on to the meat cleaver side of things, meat cleavers in today's world, well, cleavers in today's world, have kind of come down to two categories. You've got what are kind of colloquially known as meat cleavers or, or you know, bone cleavers. And then you have the Asian cleavers, the Chinese, Japanese style cleavers that are uh, popular with uh, with professional cooks and chef's knives. Now, there's nothing wrong with the latter category. There's nothing wrong with any of the Asian cleavers. However, they are not the same thing. They are not purpose-made for what you're referring to as far as a meat cleaver, and that's going to be its purpose of breaking and splitting bone cleanly. Um, in traditional Western butchery, we're going to usually use a cleaver to do bone-in cuts. We're going to use it to uh, cut rib bones. We're going to use it to probably cut through spine in some areas. We're going to use it for splitting purposes. We're going to use it to make good, clean breaks instead of having to use a saw. Now, we'll say for that use, you can get away with just using a handsaw, using an electric saw, I do have a good uh, good cleaver. I do enjoy using it. Uh, I break it out from time to time. It's got a, a variety of uses, but I, I do more saw work. So it's not totally necessary. If you want to go fully off-grid, require no power, and not have to actually use a handsaw, it's, it's a good option. Anyways, um, as far as the Asian cleavers go, they're designed to have a large, wide blade profile, but you'll notice that they are light and thin. Almost every se uh, set of kitchen knives that you buy anymore comes with that cleaver-looking object, and it's great for chopping, chopping vegetables, chopping up uh, you know, bacon or ham, whatever you want to do. Fine chopping stuff that you can have that wide blade profile that allows you to get way up off that board, have plenty of room for your hand, it's comfortable. Uh, you can get your fingers in there and actually do some chopping work and not uh, take the tips of your fingers off a little bit because you can feel the edge of that or the side of that blade, you know, kind of curl your knuckles in up against it. They're, they're great. I really enjoy them for just average kitchen type stuff. However, they're not the same thing. If you try to take one of those and use it like you would a butcher cleaver, you're going to end up with a rolled edge. You're going to end up with a broken blade because they do not have the one thing that a a real butcher or splitting cleaver has, and that is going to be weight. So the cleaver that I have that I will use for this when I do decide to break it out, and primarily when I do, I'll use it on something like lamb or deer. I don't usually use it on beef uh, because even... Even rib bones on beef can be a little bit much for it. Uh, it does take some skill and practice to use something like this because what I typically use is a Dexter Russell 8-inch. Now, I'm going to give a link. I'm going to send the link to uh, Jack uh, where you can get it on Amazon. You can find it anywhere that sells. Uh, and Man, I tell you, the birds are, are just chirping in the background of this one. I've got a blackbird uh, out there just calling away, too, as well. So I apologize if there's noise on the background of this. I do live out in the sticks. Um, anyways, um, I have a Dexter Russell, Dexter Russell 8 inch, uh, heavy meat cleaver. And I do enjoy it. I use it a ton. It's great for when you just don't want to grab a saw. 
Uh, but it is kind of unwieldy in the hand just because it's almost three pounds. It's like 2.7 pounds to use. There is a nine inch version too. That's a little bit heavier and that's a perfectly good option. If you have big hands and if you're a strong individual, if you're used to swinging a hammer, if you're used to being accurate with, uh, with tools in the hands, you're not going to have an issue, but it's just like any tool. You're going to have to take some time to practice with it and get good edge alignment where you're hitting, how you're hitting, getting your other hand out of the way all matter a lot because you're swinging a big, meaty, very thick piece of steel to break that bone cleanly. Now, this thing weighs as much as a small sword, and it's the size of uh, a small-ish butcher knife as far as the length goes. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about using this tool. Uh, This is not a delicate tool. This is not something that you're going to do any kind of fine cutting with. In fact, just like with using a handsaw or any other kind of saw that's not a dedicated meat bandsaw, I recommend you go through and pre-slice all of the meat around the cut before you actually attempt to attack the bone because this is not a precision tool and it will leave cuts in the meat. It will leave uh, tears in the meat that you don't want to see in the final product. It's honestly more like using a hatchet. And that's the closest thing I can equate it to, is using a hatchet or a very heavy knife like a Gurkha or a thick tanged machete. That's the feel of it. It's heavy on the end. It's a chopper. It's made to just break through things. So like I said, not a precision tool. Now, if you ever do decide you want to feel a little bit froggy and you want to cut T-bones with this, or you want to do something that is a little bit more precise... As I said before, use a good, sharp, clean knife, cut everything away, pre-do the cut on all the meat with a good knife, lay that that cleaver down, and you can take something that's a soft-faced uh, mallet, like a rubber mallet or a wooden mallet, and tap you know, firmly on the back side of that blade. And it's got a big, thick spine, so you can do so safely. And tap, 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 and control that cut. You can be using one hand to actually guide the cutting action and providing the force instead of swinging it like you were trying to swing an axe, providing that force with the mallet. That is actually a really good way for you to learn uh, the feel and the action of this blade. Uh, Another important thing is because it's such a thick blade, you realize you're going to have very steep, um, very steep angles on that bevel. So as you're cutting, what looks like it's going to be straight is actually going to start to walk to one side or the other. It's going to walk away from the surface of where you were cutting. So you're not going to end up, until you have some practice with that, with picture-perfect cuts that look like they came out of the supermarket. So there is definitely a uh, an art to it. Um, there is another category of cleavers, or what I would say would fall in the cleavers, that most people are probably not aware of, and this would uh, fall right in line with some of your stories. It was uh, something that was used heavily back in the day before we started using mechanical saws, and that was known as a splitter, um, often called a beef splitter, a pork splitter. Beef splitters were usually bigger, but they were a cleaver, often with an elongated blade, usually in 10, 12 inches, pretty good-sized blades, but with a long handle made to use two hands, sometimes up to a few feet long. Uh, it was often, it just kind of looked like a piece of medieval weaponry. Uh, it would often look almost like it was some sort of sword with a massive blade on the end of it. But the idea behind it was, as you know, with pork, with beef, once you hang it up before you hang it to age it, you typically are going to split it. 
split that carcass down the spine. Now, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. And it does take a fair amount of skill to per- to properly split a spine in two lengthwise. That's what these things shined at. And uh, you can still find some that are reproductions. You can find some that are commercially made. Uh, and you can find old school restored ones. No matter what you do, you're spending some money. I think the cheapest I've ever seen was about $400. I've seen them uh, restored models go for up to over $2,000 a piece. I'm not suggesting you'll ever need one of those. I much would prefer to use a good reciprocating saw with a sharp blade to do so. But they're super cool. And man, if I ever got my hands on one, that would be that would be awesome. I'd love to do some videos with that. I'd love to do some experimentation with it. That said, that's another category of cleavers. Probably bigger than something you'll ever need. Um, I will follow this up with saying that it's up to you whether or not you feel you need a cleaver. I think it's super cool. The price point isn't way out there. A good quality cleaver, and I would rate the Dexter Russell as one that will you could pass on to your children easily, probably your grandkids. It's high quality enough that it's going to last a few generations if you take care of it. Do you need it? Probably not. Is it really awesome to have and probably worth spending 50 60 bucks on? I'd say so. I'd say so, too. It's my go-to tool when I need to process uh, poultry, kind of like that rooster that won't shut up in the background. He might be on the short list. Um, for me, a lot of times, if I'm only doing a few, it's easier to just go ahead and lay them down quick on the stump and top, pop the head off. I actually find that uh, heavy cleaver works a little bit better, and it's a little bit more reliable than using a hatchet. So... Your mileage may vary there. If you want any more information on it, be sure to reach out directly to me. You can uh, reach me over at uh, josh at renegadebutcher.com. Send another question to Jack at the Expert Council here, uh, the TSP Expert Council, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Be sure to let him know it's for the Renegade Butcher or for anybody else on the uh, Expert Council. I encourage everybody who is listening, if you have any ideas, questions, thoughts related to homesteading, self-preparedness, you know, self-reliance, Send them out there to Jack. Uh, if you don't know who to ask, he will probably assign it to somebody, and we can always use more questions. Because if we run out of stuff, we're just going to have to come up with things. All right, guys, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for this question. It was an awesome one. Really enjoyed answering it. Hope you all have a wonderful week, uh, weekend, and you all take care. We'll see you all soon. Peace out. I'll, I'll, I'll just say I don't cut a lot of bone anymore. Um, but I do have some input from when I did. Um, meat cleavers are great for cutting small amounts of bone. They're also great for like, you know, there is the kind of like, you look at a chicken and go, this was probably cut by an Asian dude. Uh, and, but there's a reason to do it where they'll basically, instead of serving a whole leg or a whole thigh, they'll go right through the bone and cook it that way. It's actually a really cool way to do things. And it does add flavor because it releases some of the marrow and stuff out of those bones so that is a good use for it there are things that you can really use a cleaver for i have one i don't use it very much and there's nothing wrong with it just i've learned to kind of avoid that um when it comes to like beef josh is right even rib bones really you're you're outclassed for the for the implement um i've used cleavers but you're in deer and deer sized animals before when I was a kid, when I first learned to butcher deer, before I learned to mostly just bone everything and separate out the joints and what have you, uh, we, we used to do it kind of the old school way where we would split the deer in half just like it was a big cow, 
and you'd take like your, your, your basically your equivalent of your T-bones and your ribeyes and all that, and we would we would do it just like a bone-in uh, ribeye. We called them chops, and we would take that out, and we would cut always cut the meat and then cut the bone and do them bone in. And 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 I, I've basically determined that there's a lot of effort that goes into that. It's not necessary. However, when we did it, we just used a hand bone saw, and the one. The, it's I, it's not the same brand, but it looks like the exact same saw when I did some research today that I used 35 years ago. Even the little the way that the the tensioner is coped on the back, it looks like the saw I used when I was 13 years old is on Amazon, and I like that saw. Again, it looks like a bow, a bow saw, not really a bow, sort of like a bow saw that you'd use to cut tree limbs. It's like a giant hacksaw in, in the frame shape. I like that because when the blade is worn out, it's easy to replace. And so that is one all, one action, one thing you could do. Now, with deer and such, I still do cut some bone. And I'll tell you what, what, I, what I usually do when I'm cutting bone is I'm cutting the hocks, the lower leg. A lot of people just discard that meat or they sit around and dick around with it and get all the silver skin off of it and what have you use it for grind. I take that whole piece, that whole hock, and all I do is take a sawzall and cut the foot off and cut it off below what would be your elbow, basically, I guess. And uh, I, I braise those, and they're delicious. And I'll save up till I have like six of them to make one meal because there's not a ton of meat on them. And I slow cook them until they just fall apart and off the bone, and it is incredibly delicious. There are times when I go hunting, and there are people there who uh, are processing their deer, and they just don't want them. And I, I, the last time I went down to Kerrville on a ranch that I paid to hunt on, I brought home something like, God, I think it was like 16 hawks for free. And I used my DeWalt reciprocating saw. Now, you can use just about any blade that you buy for a reciprocating saw will go right through bone. Okay? But for about 13 bucks, you can buy stainless steel... Um, saw blades for for you know they're pretty much universal fit. Uh, you can get four of them made out of stainless steel with a tooth design for cutting frozen meat and bone. And my rule with a saw is I do not cut through meat with the saw unless the meat's frozen. Okay, they're damn damn close because you don't get really pretty cuts unless you have like a professional meat bandsaw like Josh is talking about what most of us are not going to have or if we had it we wouldn't even be worried about this question there's there's two things about these blades they're, they're, they're made by a company called Calastro uh, they're the best ones I've found one is the, the tooth pattern but there's a lot of like it's not actually that unusual the tooth pattern it's very similar to a like a fine tooth for pruning not super fine like for, for metal cutting or whatever fine tooth tree pruning pattern if you find blades like it looks the same but the stainless steel is what's important and the stainless steel without paint on it because if you use a standard sawzall blade which i'll admit to have doing you can leave paint residue behind on the product now if there's any on the meat i just cut it off but when i found these again 13 bucks for five of them uh you know if you use one a season because you don't do that much cutting like i do you got five years for thirteen bucks, fourteen, thirteen ninety nine, fourteen bucks. I have links to Josh's cleaver, the bone saw, and the cutting blades in the show notes for today's show. 
And I'm not putting anybody off a cleaver. Kind of dig having one. I just find that I don't reach for it very much as I've taken this approach with smaller animals to not generally cutting bone. And there are times, no matter what you do, that if you want to really utilize the whole animal, you need to cut some bone. Um, but the stainless steel blades for the sawzall is what I've gone to because I'll also do it. Sometimes I'll take the femur bones from a deer and cut them into a few pieces. It'd be nice to have a bandsaw to split them and actually do marrow. But just like for stewing and making, or I'm not sorry, stewing, making stock and all, I'll open them up to let that marrow out. Anyway, moving on, let's hear from Doc Bones on, of all things, mudslides, because it's mudslide season. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website, doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Hey, do you think Jack listens to these? Because today I'm going to talk dirty to you. Yep, I'm going to tell you all about mudslides. <laughs> the sunny southwest U.S., including Southern California, was hit recently by tropical cyclone Hillary 1L, a weather event that gave some desert areas a year's worth of rain in 24 hours. Have a dry climate? Get wildfires. Wish for rain? Well, get flash floods and mudslides. I should probably write more about mudslides. We live part-time in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, with a mountain home overlooking town and the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. We were on the side of a cliff, really, essentially. It's got quite a slope, I'll tell you. How much? Well, let's just say you're going to need a pretty long ladder just to access the backyard from our deck. So let's talk about mudslides. A mudslide is sometimes called the debris flow, and that's a landslide with a high water content. Mudslides can act like a slow-moving river that has the consistency of wet cement. Mud, rocks, trees, and other large objects are carried along and can cause homes to collapse or slide off their foundations and a huge amount of traumatic injury to residents. In the U.S., there are about 25 to 50 deaths on average due to this natural disaster. Another type of mudslide is called a mud flow, which is characterized by a very rapid flow of water and debris. A mud flow is more liquefied due, well, at least partially, to a lot of rain added to loose soil in a short period of time. Mudslides occur for a variety of reasons. Periods of rainfall or snowmelt saturate the ground and cause instability in sloping areas. Areas prone to earthquakes, hurricanes, wildfires, and other natural disasters are especially susceptible. Indeed, in the case of the Los Angeles area, a magnitude 5.5 earthquake occurred at the same time as Hillary passed through, worsening the situation. Areas in the West that have hard, compact soil as a result of wildfires have difficult times absorbing large amounts of rain, because, especially if it falls in a short period of time. As such, water that couldn't get through this hard earth quickly forms flash floods and cascades down slopes, picking up soil and debris, and eventually could become a mudslide. Humans contribute to the risk of mudslides by planting poorly. Roads that are cut into hills, mountains, scenic mountain homes, these make mudslides more likely. River retreats at the base of a hill or a mountain in the holler, as we say in Tennessee, those are also vulnerable. Once you've made the decision to build that home on a hillside, there's a limited number of preventive measures that can be undertaken. It's a different story if you're just now planning out that dream home. There are things you can do to harden your home. Beware of steep slopes, natural or man-made runoff conduits, or eroded areas. Have the county geological survey specialist assess your property for possible mudslide risk. You might consider flexible pipe fittings. These are installed by pros that are less prone to gas or water leaks. Consider building a retaining wall in likely mudslide channels. 
avoid areas that have experienced mudslides in the past. Plan out an evacuation route and have a battery-powered NOAA weather radio available at all times. And, of course, you should have a medical kit with items to deal with both traumatic injury and, for later, water sterilization. Now, sometimes pressure from unstable earth may give you a hint that trouble is on the way and give you time to evacuate. That's very important. Having just maybe a few extra minutes can make a big difference. Mudslide-prone areas will begin to show signs of strain when Cracks develop in walls, flooring, paving, driveways, or foundations. Outside structures begin to separate from buildings. If you have stairs on the side of your building, that might separate or decking, things like that. Doors and windows become difficult to open or close. Utility lines start breaking. Fences, trees, and utility poles start tilting. Water starts accumulating in weird places. Roads and embankments along slopes start breaking off at the edges and terrain may start to bulge or slant at the base of a slope. So these are some signs that you may be in big trouble in the very near future. During a mudslide, what you need to do is, of course, probably before you should always have the NOAA radio on and listen to warnings as they're reported. Of course, if you can, you should warn your neighbors that something's going to happen soon. If a mudslide's imminent, you want to get out of Dodge. Make a good decision. It's G-O-O-D. Get out of Dodge, if at all possible, with the understanding that roads may be washed out. Weather alerts should be heated. Don't take a wait-and-see attitude if they tell you to evacuate. And stay away from known mudslide areas because new mudslides may still occur in those places. And some mudslides, such as in Southern California, things can happen very quickly and you don't have a lot of time to evacuate. If you have to stay home, go to the second story if you have one. Watch for and avoid down power lines. And as the slide passes through, get under a table, curl into a ball, protecting your head. If you're trapped in the mud, survival rates go up if you can form an air pocket around you. As you might in avalanches, I've talked about that before, put your arms in front of your face to gain some breathing room. It's a good idea to carry a cell phone with you at all times in case you're trapped in the house or in the mud. Mudslides like wildfires leave scars on the land, but they're part and parcel of living with Mother Nature. You need to plan before you build, know the danger signs, and hit the road as early as possible in the face of an imminent threat. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. And get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So, good stuff from Doc Bones, as always. Let's hit my anchor segment and I can wrap up for the weekend and go spend time with my family in a three-day weekend. Hopefully you can as well. And again, bye-bye August. I'm glad you're behind us, but boy, now we got to start working for our fall, don't we? Anyway, um, there was an article that I noticed today. It was on RT. I know some people don't like RT, but this is an accurate article. Uh, it was the article that best covered the part I wanted to talk about, so it's the reason that I'm using it. But I did verify its accuracy and that Marjorie Green actually said these things. If you love Marjorie Green, okay. If you hate her, okay. It doesn't really have anything to do with what I'm going to talk about today. It's, it's these comments that were made. And basically, she was doing a speech... So it means the remarks are prepared, and she's talking about how BRICS is gaining momentum and the risks that it has to the United States. And at least she's awake enough to know that it's going on and not pretending that it's not. But let me read you 
just the, it's, it's like three short paragraphs here, and that's all we need out of this article, and then we can talk about it. And I want you to just imagine that you work for Babylon B, and you need to alter this, and how might you alter it to where it would fit right in there? Uh, Republican Firebrand claimed that while Washington is doing nonsense including providing all kinds of support to Ukraine, which is locked in a conflict with Russia. Quote, there are countries in the world, powerful countries, organizing together because they are tired of the United States. End quote. I actually don't have a problem. It's not the If you're going, ah, that sounds so wrong. I am not talking about that piece. You need it for the context of the next piece. In the sense, the BRICS countries are making serious trade agreements. Quote, Where they are saying, we'll buy from you, you'll buy from us. We don't care about U.S. sanctions, and we'll sell to one another, buy and sell in our own currency, not the dollar, end quote, she said. Quote, this is one of the most devastating things that can happen to all of us, end quote, Green claim. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you see it now? Or are you still so mired in the slop of our education and media systems and our political system that you don't get it? Basically what she's saying is it is a disaster for all of us. It is, quote, one of the most devastating things that can happen to all of us. If, let's say, Russia sells some shit in Russia to people in China and they don't use the dollar... One of the most devastating things that can happen to all of us, because one, it shows the devaluation of the dollar, but two, it circumvents U.S. sanctions. As though our country has any right whatsoever ever to tell two nations they can or cannot do business with each other and create a gateway saying you have to use the U.S. dollar. This is one of the most devastating things that can happen to all of us. Paul, it's pretty dramatic, isn't it? What, what, one of the most devastating things that can happen to all of us. Let me read one more paragraph for you. Okay? As BRICS becomes more powerful, the U.S. dollar gets weaker, she said. Quote, and you know what happens to all of us? We're going to go broke, the congresswoman predicted. Adding that this dynamic will negatively affect retirement plans and personal savings of ordinary Americans. Quote, what is going to happen to our children when the U.S. dollar means nothing anymore because Russia and China and India, with its huge populations of billions of people, have more buying power in their own currencies than we do? This is a very serious concern, end quote, Green said. Oh, wait a minute. So, let me get this right. It has nothing to do with us printing shit tons of money. It has nothing to do with shitty monetary policy. It has nothing to do with a fiat monetary system designed to eventually fail that's been in its current form for 52 fucking years. No, 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 no. It's, 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 it's our foreign policy that threw Putin into the arms of, of Xi... And, and and India being a somewhat willing participant, and them doing business in their own shit that's destroying the value of our dollar. That's how this reads. It's not our fault. Well, it is, but it isn't. It, but we, we need to fix this shit. Screw these bricks, people, right? They have no right. We need the power of sanctions to police the world. 
We need the power of sanctions to, to, to police the world. Again, this isn't nothing about Mar Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is... She's just saying the quiet part out loud. This is how the political class and the banking class actually views this. They might argue with how exactly we deliver the message to the American sheeple, but this is what they think. This is what the political class thinks. Remember, I have no sacred cows in Washington. I hate all these people. That's why you can trust my opinions to be honest, whether you agree with them or not. I don't care about any of these scumbags in these positions of power, in government, at all, including the bureaucrats, and especially the plutocrats and the oligarchs controlling them and the bankers controlling them. I don't give a shit about I care about my people, which is the average person just trying to make a living in the world today. Okay? That's who, I don't care for these people. So I'm just telling you this is what they all actually think. My God, how could we ever... And I mean ever be Team America World Police without the power of sanctions. The real threat here is that they'll devalue the dollar and we won't be able to control them. Hold on. I think the real threat here is the motherfuckers, and I'm sorry to sound this, this rough, with, of course, with my language, but I don't have a better word for these people. The motherfuckers who have spent the last five decades destroying the value of the money in your pocket... And I don't think we ever had a right. I don't think we ever had a right to tell two countries, two sovereign freaking countries with borders and laws, you must do do business with dollars in our way. And some people will say, but they all agreed to it. Well, first of all, did they all agree to it, or did all the countries that were big enough to beat everybody's ass agree to it? Who agreed to it, right? The majority agreed. Tyranny of the majority, in of itself. Right? It's not like every country, this is a great idea. But why did they agree to it? They agreed to it because after World War II, the United States was a world power with its currency pegged directly to gold and carrying a $20 note, a $20 note from the United States Treasury was no different at that time than carrying $20 worth of physical gold in your hand. So it was a way to do business in gold that adapted to the economy that the globe could see coming. Where there would be a need for one country or one company and another one co and two different countries to do business with each other without moving around a block of metal. And in 1971, when we shit on the entire world and broke our word and defaulted on the dollar, because that's what it was, The reason to do it went away, and we've managed to control it with manipulation and a combination of soft and hard power for 50-plus years. As a giant schoolyard bully to the world, claiming to be a force for good, and telling little countries, little countries, y'all don't do business with your own money. You need us. You know what this sounds like? Fat Tony from The Simpsons. This is mafia tactics. What I'm talking about here is what our what our foreign policy refers to. Our people, our foreign policy uh, decision makers refer to as soft power. They're not bombing them for for Christ's sake. Yeah, but we're telling them they better do money in our they better do business in our money. Or and when anybody gets out of line, we just figure out who can beat them up and we fund them. This is mafia tactics. 
If you look at the protection racket racketing, protection rackets that were done like in New York City in the early 1900s, where the mob would come into your little place, your little soup shop or whatever, and go, hey, you know, it'd be a shame if something happened here. If somebody came and shook you down or something, you need protection. You give us 10%, we make sure nobody messes with you. And the guy's like, hey, there's nobody messing with me now. Are you sure nobody's messing with you? Somebody might be messing with you tomorrow. You don't know. And you know what the message was? Give us the 10%, there won't be no trouble. And you know what the one thing about the mafia was? Yeah, they would mess with you if you didn't pay them. They would create the problem for you. But let's say you were on, you were paying Fat Tony of the time, right? Whoever the guy was, you were paying your 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 penance to the mafia. And somebody did mess with you that wasn't connected to the mafia, that wasn't authorized, you know, by the capo. Like the capo didn't authorize it, they would go fuck them up. They would actually provide the service they were forcing you to pay for. They probably did a better job of it than our government, by the way. This is where we're at. And this is what CJ was talking about. This is the tie back into what CJ told you. They, we usually go to war. We can't. We can't go to direct war with our real competitors. We can't have the mafias, you know, the bosses fight it out. Because giant mushroom clouds. So we create proxy wars. You want... Another, I gave you one portrait of U.S. Uh, portrait of U.S. foreign policy so far. Here's another portrait. We take all of these little dweebs, right? All of these guys, they're like assholes, and we're like, like a gang of guys that work out together at a gym, and they're like the guys that have no neck. Like no matter what kind of martial artist you are, or something you're like, I ain't no, uh-uh, I ain't fighting him. I only want to shoot him unless it's a really big gun because he's gonna make a mad. He's gonna beat me to death with my own gun. Guys like that. And they want to get in fights, but they're like, yo, Tommy, last time we got in a fight, you remember what happened? Oh, yeah, Vinny, I remember. They threw us in a clink. I don't want to go to the clink again. We need a way to start fights and get involved. I got an idea. What we'll do, we'll go into town. We'll find a whole bunch of little skinny assholes that can't actually fight. We'll go to a bar with them and we'll tell them, hey, if anybody messes with you, don't worry about it. We got your back. And then all these guys that would never start a fight, they walk into that bar and they know they got, you know, dudes with like one eyebrow and no neck behind them. And they get into fights and altercations that they would never get into without the goons behind them. They become brave, right? Like the little kid picked on in school and all of a sudden the captain of the football team decides he's their buddy. That little kid all of a sudden he'll pick a fight with a bully because he knows his buddy's going to come in and smack this dude around. Except we do this at a geopolitical level, and just to complete the analogy, here's what happens. Every once in a while, Vinny and Tony and Victor and whoever these goons are from the, the gym are like, hey, you know what would be fun tonight? Let's go ahead and let these two guys get into it. And then we'll just leave. We'll hang them out to dry, and when the cops show up and bust everybody, we won't be there. Or maybe we even go in and we smack some people around for a little bit, and about the time we see the bartender with the phone in his hand, we all just leave and let the fight continue without us. Does that sound familiar? This is our version of the end of an empire because the direct conflict is untenable and hopefully it will stay that way. I'm okay with us no longer being an empire. I'm not okay with us no longer being a place that is habitable for humans to live. 
It's my thoughts, and that's why you better get prepared, guys. Be prepared for massive shifts economically, politically, globally, technologically. It's all coming. But you got a weekend ahead of you. And I would say rather than worry about this stuff, because there's only so much we can do about it, go out and get your fall garden ready. Get your plants started for your fall garden. Come up with a project. Plan your hunting trip and where you're going to go. Plan a fishing trip. Put meat in the freezer. Things like that. That's what the focus on this weekend. I'll catch you Tuesday with another episode. Of the, oh, wait a minute. I didn't talk about the item of the day. Real quick. Real quick here. Um, same item of the day as yesterday. The uh, Frigidaire 26-pound a day uh, portable ice maker. The thing is awesome. You can find it at the Survival Podcast or tspaz.com where you can help the show no matter what you buy as long as you start your shopping there. A ton of you guys have picked one of these up. Everybody I've heard from about it is really happy with it. It's already got it running. Remember, pick up, pick up some cleaner and run cleaner through your ice maker about once every three months. And then also read the article. Run it when you need it running, not all the time. And it will last, instead of you know three to four years of life out of it, you can get six, seven, eight years if you take the little extra tips that I give you. There's a video in it and all. But again, always start your shopping at tspaz.com to help us out. No matter what you buy, consider joining the Members Support Brigade as well. You can learn more about that at the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members. And with that, again, I bid you a happy long weekend. I'll catch you Tuesday with another episode. Are they going to bail you out? Just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month 